Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. As we continue to work through the book of Daniel, we're going to be looking at the first 19 verses of Daniel chapter 9. Which kind of represents a break from some of the visions and things we've looked at over the last couple weeks. It's a very instructive section for us as a church on teaching us to pray. Before we come to His Word, let's go to Him again in prayer and ask for His help. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Holy Word, we come as a people who not only need instruction, who not only need uh, good theology and doctrine, who need knowledge of Your Word, we need all of those things, but we also have hearts that need changed. We are people who are easily led astray, are easily convinced that perhaps we ourselves could save ourselves, or maybe we are the God that we've been hoping for all along. We are a people who are easily led away from Your Word, so Lord, we pray that You would draw us close to it. That You would, as we read, as we preach, as we hear Your Word, that You would change us by it. And we pray this in Your holy name. Amen. So as we come to this section of Daniel chapter 9, it is very much a, a pattern for how we pray. And it made me think of how people in general like lists, how we like little check boxes that we can check off things that says that we did that thing, right? Uh, whether it's something really big like, like a government, right, who has, who needs structure to it in order for things to be done decently and in order. Or if it's something like prayer, which tends to be a more intimate kind of thing, we still like a little checkbox that says, do pray this way, right? I mean, our Lord Jesus knew that about us. He said, pray this way, and he gave us a prayer. Books on prayer have always been popular for this reason. Books that walk us through a particular pattern of prayer, Pray this way, and maybe these things will happen, which is where a lot of these books will kind of go a little bit crazy. In the, in the year 2000, which is a lot further away now than it used to be, there was a book called The Prayer of Jabez that was published, and it made lots of uh, noise in American evangelicalism for one reason or another. But it, and it claimed to be a pattern of prayer that kind of unlocked God's blessings. As soon as you hear that word, it should cause you to kind of cringe a little bit. To be clear, I do not recommend that book, but it's really just the tip of the iceberg of that genre of book that says if you do, if you pray in this particular way, then you're going to unlock God's blessing in your life. That you're going to, you can like, uh, you know, kind of has that name it, claim it kind of bent to it. That's suggesting that if you pray in a certain way, that you're binding God to answer in a certain kind of way. Well, God is not bound by our words, but He is bound by His own. His words not only dictate His actions, but they change our hearts. They're by, by definition, they change anything and everything. 
When it comes to the prayer in our text today, we have a prayer that is rooted in God's Word to the people of God for all time, not only in Daniel's day, but in our own day as well. Daniel gives us a proper pattern for prayer, really gives us a proper pattern for repentance if you want to get right down to it, as well as we see that the majority of this prayer is is filled with confessions of Israel's sin. As we study this prayer today, we should not only learn of the or learn from the sins of Israel, but also look to our own, even as individuals, as a church, or the church, as a nation. Daniel's prayer reveals his heart toward the sin of God's people, but also his heart toward the promises of God for his people. So as we work through this prayer, I want to consider it in three main parts as a, as a pattern for prayer. First, the adoration of God. Second, repentance to God. And lastly, requests of God. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the, the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years." Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by the servant the prophets. All of Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke out against and, and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity, has 
the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O, o our God, listen to the prayer of your servant for this for his pleas of mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, again, when we look at the surrounding context for this prayer, it definitely stands out as different than the surrounding chapters, right? For all of those difficult visions that we looked at in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 that we had, the, the goats and the rams and all the things that we've been looking at. Yet when we look at the immediate context, we see a good reason for this break. There's been a change in leadership, right, as we see in verse 1. Verse 1, we have this, this other mention of the first year of Darius, the son of that guy, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. I pronounced his name once. That was good enough. Whereas the preceding chapters were under a Babylonian rule, right? We're under Belshazzar or whoever else. This chapter begins by telling us that it was under Darius the Mede. So at this point in the prophecy section, the people of God have been delivered. And this was prophesied as was going to come. Remember, Cyrus was going to come. This was prophesied in Isaiah. And then now they were ready to be restored to peace, restored to peace in Jerusalem. Daniel was anticipating that as he prayed this prayer. We get that here as he names Jeremiah's prophecy even, that this was going to happen after 70 years. He's perceived that that time has passed. Daniel's an old man now at this point in the story. He realizes that it's close for time to, for Judah to return to Jerusalem. But he also remembers what got them in exile in the first place, and he is concerned. Here we see a perfect example of how the promises of God drove Daniel to prayer. He knew the time was up, according to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, that they were going to be there in exile for 70 years. He knew that that was Time was up, and he also knew that God keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. And so now he's going to God in prayer according to those promises. God hasn't changed. The requirements for his people have not changed. And so he goes to God with his concerns about this. When it comes to our prayers, they should be rooted in the promises of God for his people. When we prayed before this sermon... 
What did we pray? We prayed that God would change us according to His Word or by His Word, that His Word itself would change us. How can we possibly pray for that? Because He says that He's going to do that. That's why we pray it. We pray that God will mature us in our faith. That we will grow together as His people. Why do we pray that? Because He says He's going to do that. Even for things that have not yet happened. We pray this morning that God's kingdom will come. It is happening and will happen. We pray for it. We pray that His will be done. It happens. It is happening. It will happen. And that's why we pray for it. We understand what it means to pray God's Word for the plain things. What I think what Daniel shows us here is that he not only prayed Scripture, but that Scripture drove his prayers. And this starts with how he addresses his Heavenly Father. That brings us to the first point, the adoration of God. Look with me again at verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. In Daniel's opening of his prayer, he addresses God according to his attributes, namely those that show how he acts toward his people, that he is a covenant-keeping God, that he shares a steadfast love with those who keep his commandments. Throughout the Bible, these ideas concerning God can be seen over and over again. The Bible is full of it, but this specific language comes from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, which says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. This is where Daniel got this prayer from, from Moses. When Daniel chooses to address the Lord, he addresses the Lord using the words that God has inspired about himself. When Moses recorded those words, he did so under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit get to decide what is said about him. He gets to decide what is said about him. God does. So Daniel, when seeking words of adoration that line up with his upcoming confession, with his upcoming request that he has for the people of God, he chooses these words according to words that God has said about himself. Earlier this year, we took some time and we did a study on prayer. And Todd took us through that study and we studied the prayer acrostic, the the acrostic acts, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And rightly, we see adoration right there at the beginning of that list. Why is it rightly? Because when we look in the scriptures, how do we see people praying? We see Daniel praying. We see David praying in the psalm. We see the apostles praying in the New Testament. How do they pray? They pray with their adoration of God first. And so that's how we pray. Daniel's prayer even gets recorded much later in the history of Jerusalem as Nehemiah has a similar prayer to the or before the returning exiles to Jerusalem. In, Dan, in Nehemiah chapter 1, he addresses God saying, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. It's almost as if Nehemiah read Moses, read Daniel. He knew these words. It may seem simple to us that we would speak of God in the ways that he speaks of himself, that we need reminded many times, often. If you don't think that we need a reminder, just listen closely 
to music that is called Christian music. Of course, this doesn't apply to all Christian music. Obviously, there's some really good stuff out there. But there's a lot of stuff that just kind of makes things up concerning God's character, concerning the names of God. And frankly, it's not just a modern invention. It's been going on as long as there has been Christian music. Making up names for God isn't a new hobby at all. But as we've read in the Shorter Catechism the last few weeks, and as we looked at today, that thing that annexed to the third commandment, which is you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain, God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So we should be careful with this. All strange views of God start when we unhitch ourselves from the pages of his word and we drift off into our own fancy. A lot of times we do so with good motives, right? We Something sounds good or we think that this is right. But why, do, why are we drifting away from Scripture when we have it so clearly presented to us? One of the reasons that I continually preach out of the Old Testament so much here at Redeemer so that we can see that all of Scripture is about our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible is full of attributions of God the Son. So full that we will never exhaust these words concerning about Jesus. We don't need to make up our own thoughts and feelings about Jesus. We have so many we could never, ever exhaust them. We only scratch the surface of these things. I mean, consider the words that we're giving here in this verse 4. The fact that God is a God who keeps covenant. There are some theologians that spend their entire career studying what it means that God is a covenant keeper. They're trying to exhaust this subject, but they're unable to do so. Concerning the steadfast love of God is closely tied to this idea of a covenant as the Hebrew word there is best understood as a covenantal kind of love. That steadfast love, or perhaps your translation says the loving kindness of God. This is God's enduring love for His covenant people. His steadfast love isn't a mere emotion, but it's God's enduring love for His people for all time and their active election, redemption, sanctification for that group of people that He calls His own. We don't really have proper words to encapsulate this idea of steadfast love, and so what should we use? Well, these words that we have. When it comes to our adoration of God, we have plenty of words that He has given us. And so we should start with them, and we should end with them, brothers and sisters in Christ. Israel's continued sin, and really our own, is our inability to worship God as we ought to worship God, and to live as He has commanded us to live. And that is the real content of Daniel's confession here. That brings us to the next point, the repentance to God. Look with me again at verses 5 and 6, Daniel chapter 9. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly, or acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. This is a great summary of the sin of the people of Israel. Their sin in general, of course, as we've been studying through the history books in our Sunday school time together, uh, in our books of prophecy, as we've preached through various books of prophecy together, we've seen some of the very, very specifics of their sins when it comes to, to God. And while we know 
those specifics. Daniel really doesn't mention any of them here. Over and over again, he mentions this idea about sin and rebellion and disobedience and transgression, but there's no specific sins of the people that are mentioned, which isn't a bad thing necessarily. He mentions the covenant curses that God will bring upon His people. You can read about those specifics if you want to. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, where where you can find those covenant curses. But he prays here in generalities until he gets to one point. There's one thing that he gets pretty specific on. It's the real problem with God's people, whether it be the Old Testament, New Testament, or today. And we see that in verse 13. Look with me at verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity, this calamity that he's talking about, of course, is their exile, I mean, ending in their exile in Babylon. All this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. We have not entreated the Lord our God. Even though all these things have happened, this is still one thing that we haven't done. This word here, entreated, is pretty strange in the original language. We really don't have a good word in our own language for it because it has to do with asking for God's favor, but it's more than just asking for God's favor, but it's asking for God's favor knowing that you really deserve punishment, that you really deserve some sort of justice. So it's not a a mere asking, but it's kind of a getting appeasement from the Lord, this idea of an entreatment. So what Daniel is saying in verse 13 is that the people of God have not once gone to him with the understanding that they have actually wronged him. While they may have been sorry for their sin, right, which is one thing that's all together, I'm sorry that I've sinned, I hate that about myself, that's something else. They may have been sorry for their suffering, of course they are. They don't want to be in Babylon. They don't want to have the suffering that's come upon them. There is no acknowledgement that the relationship between them and God has been tarnished and that there needs to be reconciliation. While they may be sorry, they don't, they've never walked up to God and said, we have wronged you. All throughout Israel's history, they wanted other things constantly as we've studied through Israel's history. When there were problems in Egypt, what did they want? They really just wanted to be out from underneath Egypt until they got outside of Egypt. Then they just wanted to go back. When there were problems on the road, they wanted food. They didn't want their Savior who said, trust in me, I'm taking you to the promised land. No, we just want to be taken care of today. And the judges, what did they want? They wanted comfort. They wanted to be able to do what was right in their own eyes. Only calling out to God when things got difficult. And it gets just more and more difficult as you go through that book. So when we get to Samuel, you think, well, maybe they're finally going to need the Lord. But no, they say they need a king. And if they had a king, that would just make everything better. It wouldn't. We know that story. When we get to Solomon, he built this magnificent temple. Perhaps... This temple is going to drive the people of God to, to worship Him. It doesn't. They mess that up too. 
And the Lord said that trouble is going to come upon you. Even as he was talking to Solomon at the dedication of the temple, the trouble is going to come upon you. But he added a caveat to that, and it's really one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. So turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 7. Second Chronicles 7, I'm going to read this section here. It's verse 14 is the verse that's oftentimes quoted, but understand what's going on here. Solomon is dedicating this temple to the Lord, and then the Lord's going to come in and say something to them. And I want you to, to match that up with the way that Daniel has prayed today in Daniel chapter 9. So I'm going to start at verse 11 and read through verse 22. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house, all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord, and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne. As I covenanted with David, your father saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you in this house that I have consecrated for my name, and I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus in this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of the fathers, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. Daniel has read Second Chronicles chapter 7. He was praying these things back to God as he prayed. God said that he was going to send drought and locusts and pestilence and other things, but if they would just humble themselves, if they would just humble themselves and turn from their wickedness, then he was going to hear them because he said, I'm going to be in this temple and I will always have eyes and ears in this place and I will listen to the prayers of the people. If you'll just humble yourselves, turn from your wickedness, then I will hear, I will forgive and I will heal. Daniel's confessing to God and telling us that that turning 
from their wicked ways, that that humbling of themselves never happened. They never came to God in humility. They never entreated Him, as which we read in Daniel chapter 9, verse 13. They never turned from their wickedness, and He has not healed their land. As we read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, we don't read about a people becoming less wicked. We do not read that, but we read about the necessity of repentance and why it is necessary for the people to turn from those ways and to turn to God. One of the acknowledgments that a child of God necessarily makes is that they are not less wicked than the world around them, but that they finally see their own wickedness for what it is, and they turn to God. A Christian is not better than those around them. We're just better off because of Jesus. That's the difference, folks. It's Jesus. A Christian's life, and then, because they're not better, a Christian's life is necessarily marked by repentance. An acknowledgement of their wickedness and a turning from it and to God. Repentance is not a work that saves us. Jesus' work saved us. But repentance is the fruit of a regenerated heart. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in their life. Show me a person without repentance and I'll show you an unbeliever. A church without repentance is no church at all. A nation without repentance is one that is under the wrath and curse of a holy God. Daniel's prayer of confession is one that demonstrates Israel's lack of repentance. This is the reason for their calamity. In the life of a believer, in the life of a church, there must be repentance for there to be forgiveness and healing. Without repentance, there is only wrath. There is only calamity. Notice verses, notice verses 7 and 8 in Daniel chapter 9. There's a word that keeps coming back there. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Compared to the honor that belongs to the Lord, to the people of God, open shame because of the things that they have done. And this brings us to the last point, which is Daniel's requests. Look with me at verse 15. Daniel starts this portion of his prayer. He says, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made your name to yourself as at this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. So he's borrowing these books, or these words from Jeremiah chapter 32. It's not a word for word copy, but the idea that he's brought them out of the, out of Egypt with a mighty hand, or as in, in Jeremiah he says, with an outstretched arm. This is a, a normal attribution to the Lord. This is, this is Daniel coming to the Lord with requests. He continues in verses 16 through 20, Daniel asked the Lord to turn his wrath away from his people, from their city, that he would have mercy on them, that he would make his face to shine upon the desolation that has become their temple. And notice Daniel's words here. Notice how he chooses to call the Lord to do this. His call has nothing to do with 
the sincerity of his request or how much in awe of God he is or the position of his body as he's praying. Rather, he, he appeals to God's own honor as he requests these things of God. So he starts in verse 16. He says, let your anger turn away from your city, Jerusalem, from your holy hill. Your people have become a byword. They've become kind of a cliche for something that's bad. Verse 17, for your sake, O Lord. Verse 18, a city called by your name. Verse 19, your people that are called by your name. And I'll read verse 19 in its entirety. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Why would you answer these prayers? For your sake, Lord. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Why would God want to save these people? Not because they're good, not because they're going to improve a little bit. Just keep reading. They don't. They don't get any better. They don't. We haven't. Right? Not because we deserve it. Not because we're on the inside track with God or anything like that. But because we bear His name. We all understand this, right? When I sign a piece of paper that says I'm going to do something or I'm going to pay something or I'm going to be in a certain place at a certain time, I do the thing. I'm at the place. Why? Because my reputation is at stake. My name is on that paper that says I'm going to do that thing. When God says that he has a people for himself from the foundation of the earth, that those people are saved by the very blood of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that they are his people, if he chose then not to save them, can you imagine that? He wouldn't be God. If he chose not to honor his promises, he would stop being who he says he is. So when Daniel calls upon the Lord for mercy, he is appealing to God's promise that he will always be their God, that they will always be his people, that he will always have a people for himself for how long? For all eternity they will be his, that he means to prosper them. Right? We read that right after verse 10 in Daniel 29, that after 70 years, I'm going to prosper you. Right? He, he intends to prosper them. He intends to bring them hope and a good future for all times. That is a prayer that God must answer because He cannot stop being Himself. God promised to deliver His people from Babylon after 70 years, and Daniel is calling upon Him to honor that promise, which is exactly what He does. God has made very specific promises for his people today over and over. We could just go on and on. We'd be here till next Sunday. But I'll name a couple that he will complete the work that he has started in us in Christ Jesus, our Lord, that he will always be with us, that he will equip us for every good work, that Jesus Christ is indeed going to return one day. It's not wrong for us to pray these things, even though he said he's going to do them. In fact, it's wrong for us not to pray these things. Would God have brought the exiles home if Daniel had never prayed this? Yes, absolutely he would. That's not the point. 
God used that prayer to change Daniel, to teach his people for all time how to pray. Will Jesus come back if no one prays for it? Yes, he will. Will he continue to equip the saints? Yes, even in spite of the saints, he will continue to equip them. Will he complete the good work that he has started in us? Yes, absolutely, even in spite of ourselves, he will do these things because of his name's sake. Prayer is how we commune with God. It's how we honor God. It's how he changes us. Ultimately, the seven years of exile would be finished, but Israel's problems weren't over at all. Right? We've been talking about this. That's what a lot of these visions have been about. Each of these promises looked forward to their final completion that they would happen once and for all in the coming of our Lord Jesus. As believers today, we continue to pray for these promises, to watch how God is going to, to work in us and through us to accomplish his purposes of salvation to a lost world, to accomplish his purposes of sanctification of us, his people. As believers, we can pray these things and know that he's doing them. But as an unbeliever here today, there's only one prayer that he's going to hear from you. You must call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Because we read it already, right? What did God say? That if you humble yourself, that if you turn from your wickedness, he will hear you and he will forgive your sins. Jesus summed it up. What, did his, what was his message? It was really simple. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin. Turn instead to Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. For the believer here today, again, we have this same call upon our lives as well. That we would meditate on the words of God. Why would we meditate on the words of God? Well, one of the reasons we meditate on His words is so that we know what we ought to pray. How we ought to pray. That we would pray the attributes of God. That we would pray the promises of God. And that we would turn from our wickedness so that his work might be complete in us. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we read these words, as we read this prayer, and as we learn from it, Lord, teach us to humble ourselves. To, to come to you, to turn from our wicked ways. Teach us to ask forgiveness. Teach us for, to ask for healing. Lord, that we would cast down our idols, those things that we think can bring us forgiveness or healing, those replacements that we have lifted up for the gospel. Cast them down that we may lift you high. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.